Please, um, please be seated. As you're seated, turn in your Bible to the book of Matthew. Matthew, and we'll be in chapter 5. If you need a Bible, we do have Bibles available out in the foyer. Please pick one up, follow along. We'll be looking at various texts as we go along. Uh, maybe you have an app on your phone. You could follow along there. Um, but just encourage you to turn to Matthew 5 and just follow along with what the text says as we go through that as, as we go through this time. So again, Merry Christmas. It is so good to see you. It's good to worship with you this morning. It's good to see some returning faces uh, and just to be able to worship with you all. And, uh, you know, many of you have been in our prayers for a long time. So we're just so glad for that chance to worship together today. Um, if you are um, not regular with what we're doing, we are going through the gospel according to Matthew. We're going through this book of Matthew. We're going verse by verse, section by section through it, uh, just to see the life of Christ and his call upon us as disciples. And today, you know, as you're visiting with us, we have a chance to follow along with us as we go through that. You know, as we think about Christmas, do we do a special Christmas message or something? You know, and it's just it's a reminder to us that every page of the Bible points to Jesus in some way. And so especially the words of Jesus. And every uh, and as we go through what he did, like in the book of Matthew, we go through what he said, again, it points to the reason that he came. And so it's really helpful for us to see as we consider this holiday, why it is we celebrate it, um, and really just give praise and honor to God. I'm going to start reading in Matthew 5, starting verse 3. We don't have slides for... We don't have slides for verses 3 through 9, but I want to get a little bit of the context before we jump into verse 10 through 16. That'll be our focus. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Then verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we come to this text, these words of Jesus on this Christmas Eve, we pray, God, that you would direct our steps, our thoughts, our hearts, that, Father, that you would do a spiritual work inside of each one of us, building us into the image of Christ in whom you desire, uh, that you desire for every one of your, uh, every one of your people. So, Father, in this sermon, preach a better sermon than I prepared. Father, bring that sermon to bear upon our hearts. And, God, that you be glorified. And we would know how to walk, Father, in a way that pleases you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, I love Christmas lights. And 
I love them so much, it's worth spending a few hours every year putting them up and then taking them down. I love Christmas lights enough to figure out which lights are broken and make sure I get the replacement ones for the ones that are out. Um, we love Christmas lights enough that we'll go spend a few hours once, you know, sometime over the season, which we did this week, to go see them over out in the community and see how uh, just how beautiful they are. I mean, it makes me happy to go see them. At the end of our cul-de-sac, we have five houses all in a row um, at the end where they're all lit up. So, you know, on a dark night, maybe it's been a hard day or something, and you go home and you drive down this, and I see these five trees, five houses down there all set up. It's just, it's, it's really encouraging. And I think it's safe to say that most people like Christmas lights, but not everyone likes Christmas lights. And so I plumbed the ends of the internet to see who doesn't like Christmas lights, and it doesn't take very long because we have, and it's easy to find because we have something called Reddit, and where people can express their opinions on it. And one Reddit writer gave me this, said this, he said, I hate Christmas lights. They're ugly stupid, extremely tacky, and I just don't get it. You went out to a store and actually bought those? Then you found an outlet and strung them up somewhere? For what? Why? If the lights were actually pretty and looked good, you'd keep them up all year, right? Oh, what's that? Oh, they look stupid through the rest of the year. Well, they look stupid now. <laughs> so that's... So, that's one writer's comment on Christmas lights. And so the thing that I think is so enjoyable and encouraging, it's hated, it's hated. Um, you know, they just really hate it. But it reveals something to us in the Beatitudes, which we just read here from Jesus. That when we read through the Beatitudes, these eight statements of blessing, blessed be, right? Those are the Beatitudes. We see eight of them listed in verses three through 10. And the first seven, they seem like universally good things. Humility, righteousness, justice, mercy, forgiveness, peace. And then, so what about this last one? And how does that fit in? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Why would people be persecuted and suffer for those first seven qualities? I mean, aren't these qualities that people want? I mean, it's like that guy who doesn't like Christmas lights. I mean, why dislike these good things? And yet we know that people dislike righteous values that Jesus speaks about in the first seven, those qualities he speaks about in the first seven Beatitudes. So the issue becomes clear when we see the reason for the persecution. He said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. So we see there's a persecution that happens as a negative response to the commandments of God. It's a hatred of God's righteousness. It's the world's desire to make up its own standard of righteousness to ignore God's word and to create some other standards some other way, whether it's through social science, whether it's through psychology, whether it's through statistics, make up one's own based on emotions, based on utility, maybe some other worldview. But plain and simple, uh, there is a hatred of a biblical view of righteousness that Jesus talks about here. Now, verse 11, if you look there with me, it expands this idea of why persecution happens. Jesus said this, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. The world hates Jesus. And so they'll persecute his followers. 
And so that's the issue that we see discussed here. The devil wants to control you. The world's powers want to control people. And Jesus says people free from control. And that's why that they're hated and persecuted. And so we need to remember today, even as we just get started, that Jesus' followers have been persecuted throughout all history. Even right now, maybe especially at Christmas, believers across the world are marginalized They're fired from jobs, they're passed over at work, they're threatened with their lives, they're imprisoned, they're sent off to work camps, they're separated from their families, they're beaten, and they're killed. So Merry Christmas, right? But that's the reality of believers around the world, even today, uh, people who are persecuted because they follow Christ. And so the Bible, uh, just to mention this now, I mean, it commends us to remember those who are imprisoned, commends us to remember those who are persecuted for following Jesus. And it's, you know, it's the time that we need to remember and to pray for them. That's why I have those calendars that are out there. Again, I just buy my own money. I make them available to you. And if you'd like one to pray for the persecuted church over this year, please do over 2024. You know, that's the one thing they, they want. We may feel like, what can I do? I live so far away. I have no control over that government, whatever. But they ask for your prayers and the churches do. And that's why that's listed in there is to pray as many experience persecution simply for following uh, Jesus. And so, yeah, please pick one up today. Well, you know, I want to just pray. Last service I did this, I want to make sure I do it. Would, would you just take a minute, pray with me as we pray for the persecuted church around the world? Heavenly Father, we know that even today, this very special holiday, Father, we know that many trials that many face and even persecution for their faith around our world, maybe inside of our own nation, maybe families experience this against other families, um, even around a Christmas table. Father, uh, we think of other nations where believers are persecuted. We just do pray you'd strengthen them, help them to know that you've sent your son in the world to give life and strength and help them bear up under the difficulties that they face. God, to bear witness to you and that you'd carry and support them at this time. We pray for your help to them. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, one thing, though, we want to also look at in our passage is not just that part. We'll go more into that, but persecution is not the only story. So go back to the, go to the last verse of our passage, so verse 16. And this passage, Jesus said this. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So we notice here there's the exact opposite response that we saw in verse 10. The first response is persecution. Here you see a response of belief and a response of praise. Here when people see Christian faith in action, there is worship that is given to God. And so in these passages, we see just different responses uh, to faith, different responses to the kingdom of God and Jesus' followers. And this rounds out the whole Beatitudes. Starting in verses 3 through 5, we saw the, the attitudes of a disciple. That was humility. You know, humility described in meekness, poverty of spirit and mourning. But in verse 6, it talks about the, the motivation of a disciple. And a disciple's motivation is to hunger and thirst after righteousness. They want to see that for their own lives and to know God and know his forgiveness and see others know that forgiveness. Verses 7 through 9, we saw the actions of a disciple as we see uh, forgiveness and peace and purity, purity of heart. And then here we see the response. What is the world's response then to discipleship to Christ? What is the response of the world 
to those who follow him. And we see two things, persecution and praise. Persecution and praise. Jesus says there's a sort of inevitability when it comes to the persecution, at least at some low-level persecution to any who follow Christ. So much that, though that a person might think, do I really want to follow Jesus if it will make me less popular? Or if it will create some tension? If it will help hurt my career or hurt me in some way? Jesus at least puts these up as, uh, he puts them up front towards following him. This is early, right? Early in his ministry, early in his sermons. And here he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Because following him won't always be in our best life now. There will be trials. And he sets those things out there so that we wouldn't be surprised. We can count the cost of following him. Do we really want to follow Jesus when it makes our life more difficult? When we might experience persecution? What would cause people around the world, throughout history, even until today, to experience so much suffering for their faith? And we see, especially in verse 10 and 11 and 12, it's in the reward. The reward of God in seeing others' lives changed. Everyone who suffers for faith knows the trials were worth it. So let's look at this more as we just look at verses 10 through 12. You can follow along. There's an outline in your bulletin if you want to follow along in there or just follow along in the text. Verse 10, Jesus said, Blessed are those who persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Again, this is an important reminder that living well for God will not, that it will, living well for God will always receive God's reward, but will not always receive the praise of others. Those who follow God, those who are part of his kingdom, those who obey his commands, they will endure insults, they'll have lies spoken about them, we see, they'll be opposed, people will make their life difficult. And why? Romans chapter 1 verse 18 says it's because the world is corrupt. And the world will do what it can do to suppress the gospel message. That's Romans 1.18. It says that men, by their unrighteousness, will suppress the truth. Persecution is one way to suppress the truth. People in power believe that by persecution, by threats, and by violence, that the Christian message will be stopped. That it won't spread. That they can actually get people to change their beliefs or at least to change their actions. It's all in an effort of suppressing the truth. And Jesus promised a blessing, though, to those who endure through that persecution. Every beatitude has a pronouncement of blessing that's given to a certain group of people. And in this one, God's blessing goes to those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. What that blessing means is that God showers favor and his gifts on those who are persecuted. God thinks it's actually commendable to have a faith so evident that others don't like it. We may not like experiencing persecution. We may not like others being against us. But God says there is a blessing that is bigger than our experience right now. Now, why is it blessed? Because the righteousness as described in the Bible is true. It's good. It's good to have only one God to honor the Lord's day, to respect authority, to, to honor life and marriage, to honor property, to tell the truth, to be content. I mean, these are all parts of the Ten Commandments, for example. I mean, these are all true. The world does not like, though, this righteousness of God. 
It has its own plan for you to follow. The world wants you to worship the state, to serve its purposes. The, worship, the world wants you to replace the worship of God with the worship of a, of a political leader or an ideology or, you know, any allegiance that gets in the way of Jesus. And allegiance to Jesus gets in the way for them. Jesus brings freedom, and they want you under control. And the world tries to control us. It tries to control us by our own passions, Right? The entry dug to the control of the world is our passions. Oh, give yourself away sexually. Abuse drugs or alcohol. Live by your emotions. Disbelieve in God. Get in massive debt. Fail to practice self-control. You know, when these passions control us, it makes it so much easier for the world around us to influence and direct us and control. These become, our passions become our God's. Now, Jesus, he brings true freedom. He brings true righteousness. He can reconcile you to God through his forgiveness on the cross. He can guide your life as you follow his word. The world will not like that. And the devil does not like that. And so they do what they can do to drag you down. They do what they, do, they can do to get you to question God's word, to make you wonder if it's all worth it, to challenge you through your family, challenge you through your fears, challenge you through your job, to make you compromise. But Jesus says, don't give up when that faith comes under pressure. It's a promise. You'll enter in the kingdom of heaven. You'll have a great reward. You'll be included among the great prophets, the spiritual leaders of the past who were also persecuted. God will honor those who, who stand in the truth, even against opposition. And there are heroes of the faith whose names are honored for the way they give their lives for God. We see in the Bible, Stephen, and we see some of the apostles. But throughout history, the apostles that are listed there, men like Polycarp, Justin Martyr, Jan Hus, William Tyndale, Hugh Latimer, Nicholas Ridley, Jim Elliott, you know, many more unnamed that God has a reward for. You know, most, most of the martyrs throughout history, they're, they're unnamed. The last hundred years, you know, we've seen so much death through the Soviet Union, Nazi Germany, modern China, so many Christians persecuted for their faith. You know, we tell, tell their stories. I mean, this is our, this is our heritage as those who've given their lives, that the faith will be passed down from one generation to the next. They persevered. When we get to heaven, you know, I, I think, you know, as God doles out rewards for those who followed him faithfully through this life, I mean, there'll be so many people that we've never heard of because they just faithfully, quietly serve their God, even to give up their own lives. There's a promise that is so big that Jesus says, rejoice and be glad when you're persecuted. Rejoice and be glad. Usually not the, 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 the things we want to do when we face difficulties, right? The more difficulty we face, the greater the reward. The challenge is so big and the reward is so grand that this beatitude even gets three verses, right? It's not just verse 10, but it's all lumped in verse 10, 11, and 12. And so when your faith is hard, what do you do? Do you complain or do you give thanks? We just cannot imagine the rewards of heaven for those who persevere through these trials. Jesus himself said he did not come to bring peace, but a sword. If you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to have to stand on some unpopular opinions to do unpopular things. The belief in God. The belief in Jesus is God. The belief in the law of God. The existence of sin, of hell, of eternal life, of worship, of marriage, of life. You may have to stand for the kingdom of God over a political kingdom or a political candidate. 
Opposition might come from family, from jobs, from government. But even as we come to celebrate Christmas, we realize that's exactly what Jesus did when he came, isn't it? I mean, he followed the Lord, even to the point of his own persecution. Even his own birth was such a threat to King Herod, he's almost killed as his family had to flee to Egypt. But that was critical for our freedom. We stand in his freedom, even as others would want to take it away and put it under some other control. We're strong in his promises. We're sure to pray for others as they stand strong. Because it's not something that we can do by our own willpower. It's not just something that we just do by ourselves. But it's through prayer, it's through the promises of God and the body of Christ together. So we see, first, that, that persecution, the reward. The second point we want to look at is in verses 13 through 16. We're talking about role and responsibility and our call to be salt and light. So Jesus talks about these rewards that come after persecution. But after that, he talks about the nature of his followers um, and what they're supposed to do in the world. What are we supposed to do in the world? Matthew 13 starts off, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. What he's describing here is our purpose. It's a matter of identity. How did Jesus want his disciples to think about themselves? To think of themselves as salt. We see two functions of salt. One thing that salt does is it brings flavor to our food, doesn't it? And another thing it does is it preserves food. Both these are relevant to us as we consider our call. I mean, first, we think about the flavoring aspect of salt. And we, we know we use salt to make food taste better, that it brings out certain qualities in food. I mean, as you look at health information, that stuff, what's been shown to us as Americans, is there's more and more salt that's being added to our diet. And, you know, I mean, it is so good, isn't it? You know, and I'm a sucker for salty food. You know, I'm already planning out my post-holiday you know, eating plan, right? Maybe you are too, but, you know, it's just been a good time to eat. But salt, beside flavoring thing, preserves things. Just remember during Jesus' day, no refrigerators, no freezers, People still needed to preserve meat long enough to sell it and to eat it. And by using salt, they could keep it for a longer time. Now, whichever Jesus meant in this, it reminds us that he intends his followers to influence the world. It means that the church of Jesus Christ and individual Christians, they add a little taste. Add a little taste to the world around us. While the people around us may be willing to drink down any of the garbage they find around them, when we take down Christian truth, it tastes a little different. I've been amazed online through what's available on there, resources that are available online. There are lots of people trying to help marriages, trying to help parents in raising their children, helping men to be good men, women how to be good women, singles to meet someone and get married. It's, it's all over the internet. And maybe you've benefited from some of that advice. Maybe some of it's just been horrible and rotten. Sometimes you might wonder, you know, if all these things are out there, all these things to help people, you know, why do we still need a church? What's the church's help place, you know, if these other places to help people are already there? Well, Jesus is telling us his disciples have a distinct taste and flavor to the things they do. And that flavor is the taste of the kingdom of God. So Christians want better marriages, stronger families, to be better men and women, to get married, to use our singleness to the, to the glory of God. But when we talk about it, we talk about those things as disciples of Jesus. Our goal is not just to have a great family 
so we can have better family vacations or anything like that. No, our goal for a great family is to glorify God, to, to do the things that we do in obedience to him. What good is it to have better lives, but to still be judged for our sins as we live alienated from God? Now, notice that so much of the advice and the counsel that I hear is just, but what I've noticed is the difference that Christians have in the way that often they give advice and counsel. It has a different taste to it. I mean, that's, that's the taste of Jesus, the taste of grace. It's showing me that it's not just, um, you know, that I'm doing it for my own selfish reasons, self-centered reasons. I'm really ultimately doing it for a greater purpose in the service of God. It's the taste of grace to know, you know, that, that God accepts us. He receives us by faith, but he sends us on this mission in order to serve and please him in the things that we do. It's grace of God's acceptance and operating out of his strength and out of my own. You know, there's a desire to follow Jesus that happens when others help it. It's, it's evident. That's, that's the church being salt. To go out in the world, to interact in our workplace, interact in our communities, interact in our schools, interact as followers of Jesus, that the truth of Christ would be tasted and the world would see the character of Jesus. And in this, we're not insulated away from the world. That would not be salty if we were insulated from the world. Though Christians, they go to where others are, just like Jesus came to us at Christmas. He came to where we are in this world in the same way Jesus' disciples go to where the salt is needed, to the broken, to the lost. We don't wait for them to come to us. We go to them. Salt is sprinkled into the world, sprinkled through the good of others. Not just at Christmas time, but really endeavoring to do that throughout the course of the year. Now, another function of salt is preservation. From the beginning, the devil worked to push people outside of God's boundaries, to undermine what God had created. When believers act as salt, they work to preserve what God has created. And as they follow Jesus, they recognize that God has made the world in a certain way, and that by working outside of God's way, it only brings chaos, pain, and dishonor to God. And so Jesus' disciples, they continue to witness to what God has done, to bring people back to what God has created the world to be, and to show how God has established this for his good purposes. I mean, salt it makes us thirsty, doesn't it? And that thirst just drives us to satisfy it in drinking something. It ultimately brings us to Jesus. That's because ultimately he's the only way to be restored to God, to God's purposes. We've broken his commands. We need to be restored to God, to come under his design, to walk in it. Jesus came to make those things possible. But we fail to see God's plan of grace if we think we just need to work hard and then maybe we'll come under God's blessing. The Christian faith recognizes you can never do enough to come back into God's favor. If he didn't want you back, you never could go back. But what changes is grace. It's not that we earn a redo. It's that he's made a way back to him by grace. He sent Jesus to do that. And so to be restored to God, we need to be united to Jesus Christ by faith. He's become our Lord and Savior. We accept him as an act of grace given to us out of God's kindness. But after that, we become what we should be for others. That's being salt. It's not just about us anymore. Now it's also about our ministry to others. We're salt and light to help others in that. And so Jesus gives this warning that if the salt is not salty, then it'll be thrown out. That gets back to our purpose. The Christian faith is not just for ourselves. It's for the glory of God. It is for the good of others. If we don't do what we're supposed to do, we've lost our very purpose. 
Now, I was pondering what Jesus meant when he said that salt loses its saltiness. It's hard to imagine, like the table salt that we use, right, ever becoming not salty. What, what would it even be then? It would be salt, right? But so just in pre- preparing for this, I read a little bit about salt and how salt would sometimes be packaged up and sold, and salt would be found in, in rock form. You know, be, um, you know, there'd be a rock around it and salt um, in the middle of it. And, um, you know, and so they would sell those rocks and the salt would be inside of it um, at times. And so what would happen, though, is that maybe that salt would, um, maybe that rock would fall on the ground, salt would fall out, maybe the rock would fall in water. You can imagine all the salt being dissolved away. And now you just have this rock which just has an empty cavity in it where the salt used to be. That's what Jesus is talking about here. You know, it's this rock without the salt in it. It's no longer good for anything. He says, except to be trampled on by men. It's just tossed out, put it, make it part of the road. You know, make it part of the rocks in the road so that we can travel on the road a little bit easier. That's the only thing it's good for. But not really to change. Not to make a difference. Not to preserve and to taste. If we as a church lose our saltiness, if we lose our gospel, if we lose our mission, we should not be surprised if we're tossed out. Or maybe you feel set aside by God, but maybe you've given up your own service to God only to find you've no purpose. You've lost your sense of purpose. We'd be mindful of God's mission and our faithfulness to it. Now, Jesus gives another description here in verses 15. That's the description of light. We see in verses 14. You're the light of the world. Jesus says, a city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand it gives light to all in the house. So again, we see identity. Who are we? We are light to the world. If we're going to understand who we are in faith, we have to understand ourselves as light. And he also says we're sitting on a hill. You know, this is the impossibility of not shining. If, if a, God's power is truly present inside a person's life, it will be impossible to hide that power. It will display itself. A city on a hill would be a welcome sight to weary travelers traveling through the night, going to their destination, wondering when they're going to make it, you know, wondering if they're even safe, and then they see the city on the hill lit up, knowing that they can make it. It also shows us about our, our purpose, right? Lamps are not to be put under a basket, but on a stand. In the same way, our faith is not to be hidden, but it professed so that others can benefit from it. That's Jesus' point in verse 16, isn't it? In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see <coughs> your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In the same way the salt is a benefit to others, so is the light. And that leads to the last point, response and reaping. Response and reaping, especially in verses 10 and 16. The response that people have to light to give glory to God. We see that in verse 16. They'll glorify your Father who is in heaven. This is the response to a person who's been living in darkness and looking for light. It's the response of those who know they've sinned against God and they want the forgiveness of sins. This is the response of those who search for meaning but realize they cannot find it unless there is a God and they know him. This is the response of those who sought for love and joy and looked in all the wrong places doing the wrong things and now realize that those things are found in Jesus Christ. It's finding the things we're looking for. When we find that, they give glory to God. They worship. They repent of sin. They confess our faith to the world. There is something about finding that light. Again, we're reminded, not everybody is happy with finding light. In John chapter 3, verse 20, Jesus talks about, uh, again, the two responses to light. 
John 3.20, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to light so it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. It's the same light, but two different responses. Just like me and the guy who would be standing next to each other looking at Christmas lights, we'd have very different responses. One loves the light, is refreshed to it, he comes to it. The other rejects it, avoids it, hates it, and hides from it. The one who hates the light, hates everything the light stands for. It's the hatred of, of God's law, hatred of his commandments, hatred of worship. is the hatred of the source of light itself, God. That's how Jesus characterized unbelief. And that's why persecution happens. Instead of coming face to face with the light of God, persecutors tried to snuff it out, to discredit it, to marginalize it, to take it a notch down or two. It's a vital reminder to, of the gospel to all, to all those who are persecuted. It's not that people hate us as much as they hate the God in whom we trust. The rebellion, the corruption, the disregard of God is all-consuming. That's why small acts of compromise don't work. People sometimes do small acts of compromise thinking that it will turn people away. But it just doesn't because there is a rejection of God which is behind it. In one passage, the Apostle Paul makes a comparison of his work to an aroma. Because we've talked about taste, right? Salt. We've talked about sight. We've talked about, you know, being a light. What about smell? 2 Corinthians chapter 2 talks about smell. For we, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? Right, that's part of our identity as well. It's the same smell, but there are two different senses of smell to receive that aroma. One delights in it, says it's the smell of life, and to the other, it's the fragrance of God's judgment. Even talking about forgiveness and grace and love makes people angry in consideration of God. We need one another. If we're students on a campus, if we're in a workplace, if we're in this world, we know that we need others to stand up together in this it's because we're going to face difficulties. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, the Apostle Paul you know, encourages people, stand together against what comes against you. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so whether I come and see you or absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. The point of all this, though, is that while some people will not like the salt and light and the smell, that others will. And that's really important for us to see. You know, why enter into this? Why even choose this? For the glory of God, but also the good of those around us. Enough people need that light, and they want that light, and it makes that mission worth it. Just to see one person to be saved is worth the trouble in all those who say no. Sometimes we don't like to share our faith because... You know, all the people might say no, they might not be interested. But the big story is in the one that says yes. The big story is in the one who is seeking light. Who is seeking hope and peace and joy and love and purpose. That's where the story is found. The response of, of a single person to the light of Christ makes our witness worthwhile. The glory of God makes it worthwhile. And even if it's hard now, there is a time when we see it and the reward of it in glory. God's word will not return void. 
And your witness to the, the glory of God will make that difference for all eternity, for you and for the people that come to faith in Christ. I mean, in this way, we are called to be faithful. We're called to be salt and light, regardless of the response that the world has. And that's an act of obedience to God for his glory and the good of others. Are we being faithful to that? Especially when I ask you today, if you're visiting with us, have you, how have you responded to Jesus? How have you responded to the Christian faith? Does it cause you to recoil in anger? Are you avoiding it? Christmas is not supposed to be a sentimental holiday. As Christians, we must not treat it as sentimental. The coming of Jesus was a dividing point in history. Jesus divides people, divides people based on the response to him. That's his point in this. Have you received Jesus as Lord and Savior? Where do you fall on that dividing point? If you want to know God's purpose for you personally, his power for your life, the forgiveness of your sins, reconciliation with God back to relationship with him, all those things came by him coming into this world and offering himself on the cross to take away your sins. There's life, there's freedom that's in Christ. Will you see him as Lord and Savior? Or will you see him as a threat to your own kingdom, to your own agenda, to your own love of sin? You see him as a threat to say, well, I don't have time for that. There's other things I want to pursue rather than him right now in my life. Well, he calls you out of that. There's no other way of life outside of Christ. And Jesus did not leave us to be neutral about him. We will have an opinion. Either we accept him and love him or we reject him and reject the life that's in him. And so there's so many good reasons to believe in Christ. We have a number of tracks that are available out in the foyer. You know, if you have an interest in knowing more, we'd love to share with you, you know, some of the answers to the questions that you may have, some of the doubts that you may have to show us why Jesus came, that he came, and what he did in coming. He's the light of the world. He is the light of the world. In John 8, 12, Jesus says this. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. So how then can he say his disciples are the light of the world if he's the light of the world? Well, it's in the same way that the moon is light to the world, right? The moon does not have its own light, but it reflects the light of the sun onto our planet. In the same way, a disciple is not the source of light. The church is not the source of light. Jesus Christ is the source of light. This was not a surprise that God would use a star to show where Jesus was born. It wouldn't be a surprise that these angels appeared in dazzling display to declare the birth of Christ. Light had come into the world. And do you need light? Do you want that light? It's found in Jesus. The darkness comes from the devil. It comes from the chaos of our world. It comes from our sin. We need the light of Christ for our lives. We need that light to fill us. And that's why Jesus, what he came to do, to bring light to all those who live in darkness, to expose sin in the way of righteousness, Christmas calls for a response of faith. Do we see that baby who came, who was light to the world? Do we see him as the life that we need? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Christmas holiday that you sent light into the world. You sent your son into the world that we'd have light and that we'd have life. God, he brought righteousness with him. 
He brought his kingdom with him and justice and what's true and what's good. Father, the world may be opposed to you and your kingdom and your gospel. Father, but we know it's good and we know it's right. Father, help us be faithful even when we face opposition. Help us be faithful to the truth, even in times of difficulty. We do pray for our brothers and sisters around the world to remain strong. But, Father, that we would be salt and light, even in a challenging cultural environment, because you've done so much in sending your son. We thank you. We praise you this Christmas Day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, stand together. You see our closing hymn on the screen, Angels We Have Heard on High.